My guest today is Sean Morrison. She's a creative technologist and storyteller. An accomplished entrepreneur, Sean has founded three tech companies and has been at the forefront of technology for the past 15 years. We'll learn a little more about her companies, but I'll share quickly Collective Mobile is a company that helps agencies and startups design and grow their mobile business by providing strategy, consulting, and building great apps. Collective South, my guest had the idea to set up a physical space in an area devoid of technology where people can go to learn more about technology. And then there's a Cast Beauty app. It's an award-winning app from the mind of my guest to the App Store. The Cast Beauty app was born from Sean's personal experience, but eventually it tapped into a global need to find curated, customized products based on a user's unique skin and hair profile. Sean conceived of, designed, and built this award-winning app and crafted it into a business that has served thousands of users across the globe. Sean was named one of three winners of the L'Oreal Women in Digital Award in 2015 for her app Cast Beauty and has been named to several lists highlighting her work in technology. She's the author of the best-selling Learn Design for iOS with Sketch as well as Design for iOS Development. She has written and contributed to Urban Geeks, Black Enterprise, and Politik 365, among others. Sean's educational background includes graduation from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts with a bachelor's degree in film and television and a master's degree in electronic art from Middlesex University in London. A sought-after speaker, she has graced the stages of MoDev, SXSW, and Black Tech Week, among others. She is regularly called upon to speak about topics ranging from diversity to design and investing. Sean has been featured globally in publications including the Wall Street Journal, Marie Claire Essence, Black Enterprise, and Inc. Magazine. Atlanta is very, very hot and humid. I was coming from the Bay, which is very cool and dry. Um, cool and dry works very well for my, for my skin and, and my hair and hot and humid did not. <laughs> I was not getting the results that I was used to. Um, and as I had more and more conversations with other women um, in Atlanta, Atlanta is a very transient city, as you know, so people, people are coming from, from, from lots of different places and moving to Atlanta, and, and they were having the same issue. And some people were like, well, I thought it was the water, and you know, I thought it was this, I thought it was that. I was like, well, there's one constant, which is the weather, and we know that there are demonstrable effects on your skin and your hair. Um, you know, so it was just a matter of um, me digging in and taking the time to to build something that would solve my problem, and then extending that out to other women to see if it solved their problems as well as well. Sean Morrison, welcome to the What a Word podcast. Thank you for having me. I learned from reading your bio that you studied film at NYU. Could you tell listeners what led you to study film? Um, well, I wanted to tell stories and uh, I went to the High School of Art and Design. I was a media major study. 
I was a media major, major, media, oh my goodness, media studies major, um, which is basically video, video and filmmaking. And so I wanted to, I wanted to use the visual medium to tell stories and um, NYU was probably one of the best around at the time. I was inspired by uh, people like Spike Lee and um, I don't know if anybody even remembers Maddie Rich. Do you remember Maddie Rich? Straight out of, what was his, what was his movie? Straight Straight out of Brooklyn. Something like that, yeah. So yes, yes, you know, yes. there were quite a few uh, black filmmakers telling stories, uh, telling our stories at the time. Um, and I wanted to sort of, you know, follow in, in that path, there, you know, ironically, there weren't any women. Uh, there was no Ava DuVernay back then, but I, I certainly wanted to uh, follow in the footsteps of those guys and, and, and tell stories um, that reflected my life as well. So that took me to, um, to NYU. Um, I think I'd gotten into, I'd gotten into a few other, other film programs, but, you know, NYU was close to home and, and uh, it just sort of made sense to go there. So that's, that's what I did. So you were living in New York City at the time? Yes. Okay. Was there anything that happened in your schooling prior to NYU that pushed you into film? Were you like a creative spirit? Absolutely. Um, so at, I mentioned uh, going to, attending the High School of Art and Design and uh, that was a school that I, I jokingly say to people that that was where the, the kids who didn't get into the fame school went. Um, but nonetheless, it was a very um, immersive program for, for people who were creative. We literally spent about half of the day um, exploring the creative pursuits. Um, and that sort of whet my appetite. I think prior to then, I didn't really, I wasn't really clear on what I wanted to do, but it was uh, during that time that it really sort of crystallized for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm really grateful to the education that I got at uh, Art and Design uh, for really just sort of whetting my appetite in terms of what could be possible outside of, um, you know, you grew up in a West Indian uh, family, it's doctor or lawyer and not a whole lot of other options. And so I think for, for somebody like me um, who was uh, creative, uh, it really sort of opened up to me other options in terms of a career path that, that I wasn't aware of. I gotta be honest with you, I'm learning now how many other options were available and you're absolutely correct growing up in a caribbean environment you're well not limited but the career pursuits that are identified are somewhat limited to be honest well the and it's also the career pursuits that are identified as uh being impactful right sure uh, how, how do you uh make an impact not only in but for your community and those pathways were extremely extremely limited um so i vaguely remember having a conversation with my parents telling them that i wanted to study film and it they were appalled like you know the first question is literally how do you even make a living like what could you possibly do um with a film education and i think for for that time, 
um, it made sense, right? Because, you know, it was a different time and, and it wasn't entirely clear. And I think also, you know, our parents are immigrants. And so they come here and they really sort of uh, embrace the American dream, such as it is. And so they want the best for their kids. And so, you know, that doesn't really align with those ambitions that they have. So, you know, I, I get it. I get it. I understand why uh, <laughs> they were sort of incredulous at my decision to, uh, to study film in school. I get it. Did your creative side include poetry writing as well? So I wouldn't call what I did poetry. <laughs> so I went through a phase, I think like most people in most people in New York, which is the hometown of hip hop, I went through a phase where I fancied myself to be a rapper. So, you know, I, uh, I had a few things. <laughs> That's a good question, actually. I haven't thought about that in a really long time. But You had an alias and everything, a rap name? Oh, I think you know that I had an alias, Mr. Shark, but I'm not going to say what it is. <laughs> it's not for public dissemination, but yeah, I think I went through that phase like everybody else where I thought, you know, let me drop a few bars. Um, but uh, yeah, that quickly sort of fell by the wayside. Um, so no, I did not consider myself to be a poet. <laughs> So I have friends who I believe have transferable skills that they could leave one area of career pursued and go into another. And I think you've probably just from reading your bio identified with those friends. What led from film to your to piquing your interest in computers or the tech world, so to speak? Well, I was so I was always uh, interested in technology. Uh, back in the day, I had a, I had a Commodore VIC-20, I had a Commodore 64, uh, if anybody knows what those are. Um, but quite frankly, what led to me sort of being, or moving into technology, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. I, I literally could not find a job in San Francisco that was not in the tech uh, field. You know, when I moved out to the Bay, um, I'd had like uh, a, a, a series of just random retail jobs and that didn't go down well with, with, with having a West Indian parents either. It's like, what are you doing? This is, you know, this is not even, if you have a college degree, why are you working in retail? And so, you know, so I, there was a point where you were like a struggling artist, so to speak. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't, because I wasn't focused on art at that point. I was really just trying to, to figure, figure things out. Um, and I was in California where I didn't have any relatives or anything. So I was just trying to get by. And so, you know, I took a series of, of uh, you know, retail, retail jobs, easy to get. Um, easy to lose as well. Um, and then when I got a little, I, I had a friend that taught me the basics of uh, basics of uh, HTML development, um, just sort of, you know, on the side, nothing serious, nothing professional. But that, when I sort of gathered myself and decided to find a real job, that really came in handy. And because it was the first dot-com boom um, in the Bay Area, that led to me getting my first job in technology. So the transition was, it was, it was seamless for me. Um, it, was, it was easy because I'd had those, those fundamentals sort of in technology. 
um, and that everything else I just learned by doing really and, and basically by osmosis, just uh, interacting with people who were um, way, way more immersed in technology than I was. How long was that tutelage with your friend who taught you HTML? Do you remember how long that took for you to pick up the basics? <laughs> Considering that we did it um, casually late at night, whenever, you know, this is before cell phones. So it wasn't like I could like text him and say, I have a question. It was just whenever he was available, he kept very unorthodox hours as well. Um, so I would say he also gave me my very first computer that, that connected to the internet, which allowed me to sort of, you know, sit at home and experiment with building a web page. So that was fortuitous. So I would say, I would say about six months um, for me to be able to sort of put something together and throw it up on the internet on my own. Yeah, I would say, I would say maybe six months. And, and his tutelage um, helped you to go into a different area totally. Absolutely, absolutely, without question. Yeah, he, he, he reminds me of that quite frequently, too, that, that, <laughs> <laughs> that he's responsible for me. <laughs> yeah. What is that word like we're seeing now where a lot of parents are during summers trying to get their children into coding and um, software engineering wasn't really a thing when no. when when i was coming up but it's 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 such a necessary skill now and lucrative at, at at that what what is the tech world like for someone who is new to it what what was your experience um my experience personally was one of being the only for quite some time uh the only woman and the only black woman in those spaces. And that was, um, so that wasn't something that was new to me, right? Um, when I was at NYU, I was often the only black woman in, in class um, or, or one of two, you know? Um, and so that, that experience was not foreign to me, um, but it, it went on consistently for quite some time um, initially. Um, I think I think that you know my experience of of, of having been the only in in certain circles prepared me well for that, but it's still a little unnerving. Um, you know, it's also heavily it was also heavily male, like more so than it is today. Um, so, you know, I wasn't. I to be honest, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that. That was just the way that it was. Um, you know, certainly years later, uh, we're having conversations about diversity, we're having conversations about inclusion, particularly um, in technology, um, but th those weren't conversations that were being had back then. It was really just about, you know, getting, getting the work done. Awesome, so you have a number of companies that you've started what preceded starting those companies? How did you get your experience uh, in the, the world of technology? Um, well, I, I, I'm gonna break that into two separate uh, questions or answers. Um, I think 
what sparks um, any business is always an idea, right? Or, or a problem that you're trying to solve. And I think for me, with, with all three businesses that I've started, I saw somewhat of a void um, that needed to be filled. And so I think that's, that's consistent across the board for me with all three of those. But um, in terms of preparing me for that, I think every job that I've had in technology prepared me for starting my own business. Um, I, prior to starting my first business, I was working at an agency where I was allowed to, I was given a fair amount of autonomy. I was allowed to, you know, create a, a mobile development division where we were creating apps for clients and I was able to, to run that, to hire um, and build a team around specific products. And that just naturally led to me starting my own mobile development agency. It was just literally a natural progression uh, from that to that, particularly uh, at that time um, when mobile was really starting to explode. Um, and being the enterprising West Indian that I am, I thought, why would I make this much money for you when I could be for myself so um that just it just it just it just made sense um and then for you know for the other the other two companies there was definitely you know for 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 the cast beauty app that was my itch that i was trying to scratch i saw a problem that i was having that was transferable to other people having the same problem so then i thought i could create a solution that was based in technology to solve that problem. And with um, Collective South, um, it's the same thing, I saw a void. I saw, you know, uh, area that was uh, sort of devoid of, of innovation and technology and wanted to sort of set up a, a physical space where people can go to learn more about technology. Um, so, I think those, you know, those are the those are the things that really drove each of the businesses that I that I've decided to start. And I'd like to hear more about the Cast Beauty app because I was telling my wife I'm talk I'm going to talk to a friend later today who went to Atlanta. Atlanta was too hot. The weather was affecting her skin, and she created an app to deal with that issue, and that in turn helped other women of color who had the same issues. Was it as simple as that? Did I oversimplify what you did? <laughs> no, not at, not at all. That 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 uh, encapsulates it wonderfully. Um, it was, um, yeah, it it was that. You know, Atlanta Atlanta's very very hot and humid. I was coming from the Bay, which is very cool and dry. Um, cool and dry works very well for my for my skin and and my hair and hot and humid did not, <laughs> I wasn't not getting the results that I was used to. Um, and as I had more and more conversations with other women um, in Atlanta, Atlanta is a very transient city, as you know, so people were coming from, from, from lots of different places and moving to Atlanta and, and they were having the same issue. And some people were like, well, I thought it was the water. And you know, I thought it was this, thought it was that. I was like, well, there's one constant, which is the weather. And we know that there are demonstrable effects on your skin and your hair. Uh, you know, so it was just a matter of um, me 
digging in and taking the time to to build something that would solve my problem and then extending that out to other women to see if it solved their problems as well as well awesome i see that you are a sought after speaker and you spend some time talking about about various topics not in, not limited to diversity design and investing how challenging is the world for people of color who are looking to get into tech into startups i mean we've read about it but what have you seen on the ground honestly i would say I would answer that in two different ways. I think that in terms of getting getting in to uh, startups and, and established companies, um, we can see that the needle hasn't moved significantly in terms of you know hiring people of color. Um, I think it's easier to start your own company today than to get hired by one of these companies, which is. Uh, what I would encourage people to do. I think that the, the barriers that previously existed um, to starting a company are significantly lower. And so if you have an idea, uh, particularly as a person of color, I think it makes more sense for you to start your own company than to take your, your brain power and work for somebody else. That's just my personal point of view. And I think that it, it, it's, it's so much easier to do that. now. I say that knowing fully well that people of color, particularly founders of color, receive a lot less venture capital than everybody else. However, that's not the only show in town, right? So you can, you can still start a company. You don't have to take venture capital. There are other ways of, of, of funding a, a company. Uh, but if you do decide to go the venture route as well, there are more and more funds being started by black women and by black men. So your options are infinitely better. So I would, I would, I would suggest that if someone is rolling an idea around in their head, do your due diligence and start your own company. Um, as opposed to waiting to get a job from Google or Facebook or whomever, you know. Um, but if that is, you know, if that is your desire, if you just want to get a job, then that's fine too. Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting now that we are living in the age of Corona, it would be interesting, I would be really interested to see how that affects hiring, particularly of people of color, whether that goes down or whether that goes up. So, I, uh, yeah, interesting conundrum that we're in. What accounts for your ability to take technical concepts and present them in a relatable way? Oh, that is uh, by and large due to my, how I over-index with having friends that are engineers. <laughs> um, I think that if I take it back to um, that one friend who taught me the basics of HTML so long ago, he was, he was an, an engineer. Um, very um, prickly character uh, would be a, a description that I think anybody that knows him would agree with, um, um, who did not suffer fools gladly. And he would explain it once, maybe twice. And if you didn't get it, um, you just were kind of SOL. 
Um, and I took that ability to work with him and channeled that into becoming a really good project manager, which is, you know, sort of being a jack of all trades, but master of none, but you're managing at an agency as a project manager, you're managing, you know, you're working with account people and media people, technical people, creative people. It, it sort of run the, runs the gamut, but a good project manager knows how to communicate with everyone, um, including your technical team who are building the products. And oftentimes you're the bridge between what they say and, and interpreting that for everyone else. So I think I picked that up there. Um, and I actually use that today with my, you know, in my company, with my engineers, I, I take what they say and I translate it into something that my clients can really understand. And I think that uh, I, picked, I picked up those skills in my interactions back then with, um, with, with my friend and just, I, I do sort of over index on knowing people that are really technical. So it was incumbent upon me to understand the language that they were speaking. Um, and so in order for me to understand it, I had to break it down into its most basic concepts. So I did it for myself and then uh, was able to do that for others as well. How long were you a project manager for? Oh, huh. Let's see, I got my first project management job in New York. No, actually that was in San Francisco and then moved back to New York and moved to London. So I was a project manager for probably a good four, four or five years. Um, so, yeah. And, and for the uninitiated, uh, being a project manager means you're working with engineers, you're working with creatives, you're working with yeah. different departments. Right. So you're, you're managing a, a project, which is probably a, a digital project. And in my case was, uh, you know, a, a website, a large website. And it's everyone that is responsible for pulling that together. As a project manager, you're, you're, you're tasked with, you know, creating and defining and holding, holding the scope of the project, um, as well as the schedule and the budget. Um, and so you're interacting with the entire team to keep them on track, on time and on budget, basically. I'm inspired. Creative solutions using technology. We're going to take a short break. And when we get back, I'll be talking to Sean about her books, her upcoming film, and she'll be leaving even more nuggets with us before we conclude the conversation. It's, it's a compelling story. Because what I see is your early start with film, working with different personalities. I see you being open to options and opportunities because of necessity. And I see those skills playing into the skills you currently have. Absolutely. And I've learned that you're now going to tell stories about some of what you've experienced. Yeah, I'm sort of, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that um, what I learned about filmmaking um, lent itself very nicely to project management um, because that's exactly it's like it's like putting a film together you're interacting with all these different disciplines you know your cinematographer your screenwriter uh lighter and everybody else that pulls it together and just making sure that we're all you know on track um and so that 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 is transferable to project management and um yeah, now I've, I've, I've come sort of full circle in terms of uh, getting back to storytelling and, and uh, combining everything that I've been doing over the past few um, years um, and bringing it right back, you know? So it's, it's been wonderful. 
actually. What would you say to listeners who, like our parents, were fearful about our future, so they were uncertain about certain career paths, mm -hmm. but they have children who are creatives, obviously. How do you allow children to fly, or young adults even, to fly without that fear of failure? Or is that a bad thing? I think that children innately have a fear of failure. I think that gets put into them by society and by their parents. So I think if you have a child that is naturally fearless, it is your job as a parent to cultivate that, particularly if, um, you know, if, if you're a black or a brown parent. I think that part of, you know, I see a lot of us kind of, killing that spirit in our kids, which I don't, I mean, look, I don't have any kids, so I'm speaking from a completely different point of view, but I have a nephew, I have cousins with kids, and I'm around kids all the time, and I think that for, um, I think it comes from wanting to protect our kids. There's a lot that parents of color need to protect their kids from, but their own creativity should never be that, should never be one of those things, so. I think if, if, you have a, if you have a child that is naturally creative, it is your job as a parent to find outlets for that creativity, but to never stifle it. Could you tell us a little about your book? I know you're an author. I have written two books. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, um, when I was doing a lot of design work, I stumbled upon a little program called Sketch. And um, at the time, the, the standard for the design community was Adobe Photoshop. Uh, it was just pretty much what everybody was using and that was that. Was that, was that. Um, I like to say that whenever I opened Adobe Photoshop, for me, it was like, just my eyes just glazed over. There were so many tools you know what I mean? It was just, it wasn't strictly for UI design, which is all I really needed it for. I mean, it's called Photoshop. So it, you know, it was, you can do things in photos with it. And it was just like, I, I would always say that, you know, when you're about to board a plane and you enter through the front, you take a peek into the cockpit and you see all of the, 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 the dials and the knobs and everything. That's what Photoshop looked like to me every time I opened it. It was like, I know that this works and I know that there, there are people who know how to use this but I am not one of those people and I cannot wrap my brain around it and sketch really sort of did away with all of those things for me um, it made it simple uh, to design uh, websites and more importantly apps which is what I needed it to do and I became a, a huge proponent of the, of the software um, just simply because it made it so easy for me and so I wanted to share that knowledge. And uh, so I wrote a book, basically, um, the book was geared towards engineers uh, who wanted to design their first app. So it's called uh, Design for iOS and Sketch. And at the time I didn't know it, but it was the first book written about Sketch. And since then Sketch has gone on to basically become, it's debatable, but I, I would say that some people will say that Sketch has sort of uh, dethroned Photoshop as the de facto standard for designing uh, websites and, and, and mobile applications. Um, and then I wrote another book that basically, because I'm in the business of, of app development, um, you know, initially 
um, Apple came out with its human interface guidelines that, um, you know, are referred to as the HIG. Um, and if you read it, basically it, it, it's a guideline on how to design best practices for uh, iOS design, but it's incredibly dry. <laughs> so I basically took the human interface guidelines and, and, and distilled it into, uh, I guess, a more interesting form. And uh, so I created, I wrote a book on that as well. And so those are the two books that I've written. Before this whole thing popped off, I was working on my third book, but um, that's still, that's, that's been put on pause, um, so. And how rewarding was it for you to see Collective Mobile come about? Because you had to have been feeling that something big was going to happen with mobile technology even before it became this necessary thing we have now. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely had that, that vibe. Um, I was, I was living in London at the time and, um, you know, everything was done on mobile phones. Um, everybody had a mobile phone, you know, and it was even more, I would say it was, people were on them more than they were here at the time. And texting was a big thing. And I just sort of felt like things would shift, it would change. You know, I was working at an agency there and we were creating campaigns for um, Europe and Asia. And I just felt like it was a watershed moment where things were gonna really take off. And so, um, yeah, um, you know, then I, I, I came back to California and started working at the agency that allowed me to, to start a mobile subsidiary and then started my own company. And so I think I did it I think I did it at the right time. Um, you know, um, obviously mobile has evolved significantly now where it's such a huge part of everyone's life. But, you know, back then it was, uh, it was uh, interesting to try to, to sell that in, try to explain to people the vision that you had and how you saw um, these little computers that we walk around with, how, we, how you saw that it would change our life in every possible way, which they definitely have. How useful are those coding classes like girls code, boys code, black girls code? Are those classes useful at, from your vantage point? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, you know, it, it depends on the program and I certainly don't know everything about every program. Um, I will say that, um, for programs specifically like Black Girls Code, um, I think what you get from something like that is, is being around people that look like you. And so the, the biases that come with being in a class with majority people who come in with their own implicit biases against you, particularly for children, I think it's really important. And so I always advocate for programs like Black Girls Code because there are biases against women in technology. There, you know, there are biases against against people of color in technology, and so the streets are really sort of littered with stories of, you know, I sent my kid to this course, and you know, I don't know, you name it, I've heard it, um, and so I think what what those programs offer you is is um, the education, but also 
the, the comfort of just being around people that look like you. So if I, I think, yeah, if you can get into one of those, absolutely. Um, you know, there are also online coding classes that, you know, you can do that, that are more or less automated and you learn at your own speed. So it depends on how your, how your children learn best. Right. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it can hurt to, 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 you know, either buy your kid a computer or have your kid have basic coding, coding skills. Um, it just, yeah, and not in this day and age anyway. I think it's a win-win. Could you tell us about your upcoming film? I can't say a ton about it, but what I will say is that um, it aims to tell the story of the challenges that women of color face in raising venture capital. And that's a pretty good summary, actually. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Sean Morrison, thank you so much for sharing with the What A Word podcast. I normally will ask if there is a way for people to contact you should they need help with anything, but I don't know if you haven't told us enough about how to get started. I suppose if someone has a startup and needs a lead later on, you would be a good resource, but you are doing the festivals, you're at uh, workshops, you're an available speaker, but do you, is that an available resource that I could recommend or should people just go in and do it full throttle and connect with resources that are available? I think, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's the way to go. I think, you know, there's so much information on the internet that if, if, if you want to do something, you could pretty much find out about anything. So I would say, first off, do your, do your research, right? Understand what you're getting into. Um, if you're able to have a conversation with someone, that's even, that's even better. If you're able to have a conversation with someone that looks like you, that's, you're, you're killing it. Um, you know, um, so try to, try to, try to do your, do your due diligence, um, initially, which is, you know, holds across the board for anything that you're interested in and then follow up and get an in-person conversation with someone that can give you their, their POV. I think that's, that's the way to go for sure. Sean, thank you so much for your time. You've given us invaluable information and I appreciate not only what you're doing, but you're an inspiration to so many. Keep up the, the great work. I, I, I want to ask you if you believe that there's another place career-wise that people should be looking at because you've ident you were such a creative back then taking unconventional paths, but mm. they've paid off. Um, is there something else that's happening beyond tech that we should know about? <laughs> um, hmm, that's a whole other podcast, man. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a lot, there's a lot happening, but I, I don't know that it's so much beyond tech. It just probably is the next frontier in technology. Um, so I think, you know, that's what you're talking about, artificial intelligence and, and augmented reality and virtual reality. I think, I think that kind of stuff is, is definitely the next, the next, the next level for sure. For awesome. sure. Yeah. Awesome. But you know, I, it's been, I, I, 
you reminded me at the top of this that it has been maybe about 20, 25 years. So it's actually really, really good to uh, connect and to uh, hear your voice. And, uh, you know, I follow you on the socials, but it's, it's, it's good to chat. It's good to chat. Indeed it is. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Not a problem, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a, have a great evening. You too. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Hi, everybody. Anaya, thank you for that beautiful introduction. I could not be prouder of everything you've done in your time with the Obama Foundation. And of course, I couldn't be prouder of all of you in the graduating class of 2020, as well as the teachers and the coaches, and most of all, parents and family who guided you along the way. Now, graduating is a big achievement under any circumstances. Some of you have had to overcome serious obstacles along the way, whether it was an illness or a parent losing a job or living in a neighborhood where people too often count you out. Along with the usual challenges of growing up, all of you have had to deal with the added pressures of social media, reports of school shootings, and the specter of climate change. And then, just as you're about to celebrate having made it through, just as you've been looking forward to proms and senior nights, graduation ceremonies, and let's face it, a whole bunch of parties, the world is turned upside down by a global pandemic. And as much as I'm sure you love your parents, I'll bet that being stuck at home with them and playing board games or watching Tiger King on TV is not exactly how you envisioned the last few months of your senior year. Now, I'll be honest with you. The disappointments of missing a live graduation, those will pass pretty quick. I don't remember much of my own high school graduation. I know that not having to sit there and listen to a commencement speaker isn't all that bad. Mine usually go on way too long. Also, not that many people look great in those caps, especially if you have big ears like me. And you'll have plenty of time to catch up with your friends once the immediate public health crisis is over. But what remains true is that your graduation marks your passage into adulthood, the time when you begin to take charge of your own life. It's when you get to decide what's important to you, the kind of career you want to pursue, who you want to build a family with, the values you want to live by. And given the current state of the world, that may be kind of scary. If you'd planned on going away for college, getting dropped off at campus in the fall, that's no longer a given. If you are planning to work while going to school, finding that first job is going to be tougher. Even families that are relatively well off are dealing with massive uncertainty. Those who were struggling before, they're hanging on by a thread. All of which means that you're gonna to have to grow up faster than some generations. This pandemic has shaken up the status quo and laid bare a lot of our country's deep-seated problems, from massive economic inequality, to ongoing racial disparities, to a lack of basic healthcare for people who need it. It's woken a lot of young people up to the fact that the old ways of doing things just don't work. That it doesn't matter how much 
money you make if everyone around you is hungry and sick, and that our society and our democracy only work when we think not just about ourselves, but about each other. It's also pulled the curtain back on another hard truth, something that we all have to eventually accept once our childhood comes to an end. You know, all those adults that you used to think were in charge and knew what they were doing, turns out they don't have all the answers. A lot of them aren't even asking the right questions. So if the world's gonna get better, it's gonna be up to you. That realization may be kind of intimidating, but I hope it's also inspiring. With all the challenges this country faces right now, nobody can tell you, no, you're too young to understand, or this is how it's always been done. Because with so much uncertainty, with everything suddenly up for grabs, this is your generation's world to shape. Since I'm one of the old guys, I won't tell you what to do with this power that rests in your hands, but I'll leave you with three quick pieces of advice. First, don't be afraid. America's gone through tough times before. Slavery, civil war, famine, disease, the Great Depression, and 9-11. And each time, we came out stronger. Usually because a new generation, young people like you, learned from past mistakes and figured out how to make things better. Second, do what you think is right. Doing what feels good, what's convenient, what's easy, that's how little kids think. Unfortunately, a lot of so-called grown-ups, including some with fancy titles and important jobs, still think that way, which is why things are so screwed up. I hope that instead you decide to ground yourself in values that last, like honesty, hard work, responsibility, fairness, generosity, respect for others. You won't get it right every time. You'll make mistakes like we all do. But if you listen to the truth that's inside yourself, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, people will notice, they'll gravitate towards you, and you'll be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And finally, build a community. No one does big things by themselves. Right now, when people are scared, it's easy to be cynical and say, let me just look out for myself or my family or people who look or think or pray like me. But if we're gonna get through these difficult times, if we're gonna create a world where everybody has opportunity to find a job and afford college, if we're gonna save the environment and defeat future pandemics, then we're gonna have to do it together. So be alive to one another's struggles. Stand up for one another's rights. Leave behind all the old ways of thinking that divide us. Sexism, racial prejudice, status, greed. And set the world on a different path. When you need help, Michelle and I have made it the mission of our foundation to give young people like you the skills and support to lead in your own communities and to connect you with other young leaders around the country and around the globe. But the truth is, you don't need us to tell you what to do, because in so many ways, you've already started to lead. Congratulations, class of 2020. Keep making us proud.